Today's reading comes from Romans 12, um, verses 1 to 8, on page 1761 of the Black Church Bibles. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, all of these members do not have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body. Each member belongs to all the others. We, have, we all have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophecy, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Thank you, Peter, and thanks, Jamie, for reading to us today. I'm interested to know when was the last time you did something really and truly new? When was the last time you did something truly new? I did something For the very first time this morning, I've never ever done this before, not once in my life. This morning, uh, on my way to church, I went to the service station and I bought a pack of cigarettes. Never have I done this in my whole life. And I brought them in really just to show you because I suspect that few of you have actually seen a packet of cigarettes recently. I certainly haven't seen one this close, perhaps ever in my life. And that's because, statistically speaking, very few people in Australia smoke today. The stats say it's about 13% and declining quite quickly. But that's not how things were back in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s in Australia. In fact, back then, nearly half of all Australians smoked cigarettes every day. And so, statistically, that would mean that about... 50 people here would have smoked cigarettes on a daily basis. Why is it that today there's just a handful of people who smoke? Well, I think you all know the answers to that. The answer is we became knowledgeable to the consequences of smoking. In 1964, the US Surgeon General published a landmark report on smoking and health and that report looked at 7,000 other papers written by health professionals and scientists and it concluded that particularly in men smoking was a cause of lung and laryngeal cancer and since 1964 there's been hundreds and hundreds of papers written that indicate the health implications of smoking cigarettes. They say now one in three cancers, cancer death is caused by smoking. They say even secondhand smoke is dangerous to your health. And that's why I'm going to keep the shrink wrap on the packet of cigarettes in my pocket. 
Here's what I want you to see. Australians have listened and they have understood we've got the message about smoking, we've learnt that it's harmful for our health and we've acted upon that as a nation. So we've either given up smoking or at least we've cut down the number of cigarettes we might smoke or perhaps we've never taken up smoking in the first place. So we've understood smoking is not so good for our health and that knowledge has led to a change in behaviour. And that is exactly what the first few verses of Romans chapter 12 are all about. Now let me be clear, they have nothing to do with smoking. And I think in the big scheme of things, God probably doesn't care that much about whether we smoke cigarettes or we don't. But the first few verses of Romans 12 basically says this, if we know God... And the gospel, if we know what God has done for us, then that must influence the way that we live our lives. Or put another way, to use big words, theology shapes our practice. So if we know that smoking is not so good for our health, if we really know that, we really understand that, we're probably less likely to start smoking. See, knowledge, in that case, shapes our behaviour. I think this is what Romans 12 is about. If we know what God has done for us, that he's taken us as sinners, sinners like you and like me. And through his grace and through his mercy, he saved us. That must shape the way that we think and live and behave. That's the big idea that we're looking at today in the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. If you haven't already got it open, I'd love you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. You'll find it on page 1761 of your black Bibles. And we're going to be working our way, particularly through the first two verses of chapter 12, fairly slowly this morning because these two verses, they mark an important transition in the book of Romans. Really, they start talking about the how how to live. So let me read to you from Romans 12 verse 1. Paul says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I suspect as I look around the room, knowing the background of some of you, that many of you will have heard this saying before, what is the therefore, therefore? And in Romans chapter 12, I think this is daytime when we've got to ask that question. What is the therefore, therefore? Because that one word, therefore, I think it's essentially saying, now that you've understood all that we've looked at in verses or chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, now that you've covered the theological background, now that you know what God has done and how he's done it, then change. Offer your whole self to God. That one word, therefore, is, is calling to mind all of chapters 1 to 11. Uh, we haven't got time, um, perhaps fortunately, to cover all of those chapters again right now, but I do want to remind you of just some of the high points in chapters 1 to 11, just to remind you about this. What is this therefore, therefore? I kind of want to take you back to some of those lookouts on our walk up Mount Lofty. So come with me to chapter 3, verse 10. Really important verse for us. 3 verse 10 says this as it is written there is no one righteous not even one 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has essentially shown us that you and I, that Jew and Gentile, all of us, we don't deserve to be part of God's family. We're all broken or we're all corrupt. None of us shape up to God's standards and we're hopelessly lost. Now, you might not feel particularly corrupt today. You may not feel particularly sinful. I think that's part of our culture today is that we kind of see ourselves as pretty good. Maybe we've got a few rough edges, but on the whole, we're pretty good. But Romans doesn't teach that. Romans says when you look at the standard that God demands, when you see the holiness of God, none of us even come close. That kind of poses a question for us. What are we going to do then? How could we ever be part of God's family, part of his promises? And then just a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 21, we read this, and it starts with that great word, but. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Wow, this is, this is the really big thing in the book of Romans. This is the heartbeat of the letter, so to speak. Righteousness, that means being declared not guilty in God's courtroom, despite our very guilty position. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Paul goes on to say, just in the next verse, all have sinned, you and I, all of us have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And yet we can be justified. We can be made right with God. We can be declared in God's courtroom not guilty. We can be redeemed because of Jesus and his atoning death on the cross. But that is the heartbeat of this letter. I want to ask you this morning, have you got that? Have you understood that? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you know that truth? Because that's the big question that the book of Romans is asking us. Do you know those things? Because Romans chapter 12, where we're at today, it's kind of written for those who are justified, for those who are redeemed, for those who recognize their sinfulness and therefore it's written for those who recognize the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God in forgiving them and making them right with him. So if you don't know that this morning, if you're not sure about what Jesus has done, let me encourage you, keep reading through the first 11 chapters of Romans. You would have got a leaflet when you came in this morning. If you'd like to talk to someone more about what Jesus has done, please write that on the response slip of the leaflet. And a bit later on, you can put it in the everything box out on the hall table. I'd love to chat with you more about what Jesus has done. And early next year, we'll be running another life course, which will give you opportunities to ask those sorts of questions together. But don't leave it to next year. Come and chat with me later on. See, Romans gives us two options, doesn't it? Either we trust in the work of Jesus and are justified, 
or we reject Jesus and we continue to live life on our own terms. Paul's been setting up those two options. In other parts of the letter, he speaks about the realm of death and he contrasts it to the realm of life. He says, without Jesus, we're all heading to the realm of death. But because of God's kindness, because of his grace, or as chapter 12 puts it, because of his many mercies to us, we can be moved from the realm of death to the realm of life. That's some of the highlights in chapters 1 to 11. Now come back with me to chapter 12. I hope it's beginning to make sense with that therefore is therefore. Here's what Douglas Moo says. Douglas Moo is a commentator and a Christian theologian. He says, all theology is practical and all practice, if truly Christian, is theological. That's what the therefore is all about, isn't it? Because of what we were, And because of what God has done, his many mercies, we need to live out our lives differently. Our practice should be different. The science of smoking shows us that smoking is a harmful thing to do. And as Australia, we've understood and listened to that. And it's changed our behaviour as a nation. Paul's laid out for us the theological truths of who we were and what God has done for us in Romans. And if we understand these things, if we know now the mercies of God, surely that should shape how we live, should change the way that we go about doing things. And the how, what are we to do? Well, Paul sets it out for us. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And you notice the urgency with which Paul is writing here as well? He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters. I wonder when the last time you urged someone to do something was. My guess is that you kind of often recommend that someone would do something. You might recommend to your kids to eat their veggies at night. You might recommend people to pay their bills on time. But urging is kind of different, isn't it? Urging is the thing you do when you ask someone to step away from the edge of a cliff. Or how you might urge a friend not to drive home if they're under the influence of alcohol. Urging is a serious thing, and Paul is serious here when he speaks to us. He's urging us to be shaped by what we know and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. If you're reading that for the first time this morning, it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? What do you think Paul means there? I think it's probably... A little easier to understand if we remember that this letter was first written to the Roman church back many years ago. Back then religion was different to what it is today. Douglas Moo, that commentator, I think he's helpful again at this point. He says that in the Western world today, we tend to think of religion as a a system of belief or a way of living. He says in the ancient world, religion was essentially all about sacrifice. Religion was all about the killing of animals or in some religions and in some cases even the killing of people. That was central to how religions expressed their idea of worship. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to express your gratitude to God, your thanksgiving to God, you'd offer a sacrifice. And that took place as your form of worship. It was often done in a temple. And Paul takes this idea, he says, to express gratitude to God, don't offer an animal, 
I think in part that's not enough. That's not enough to express your gratitude. But also God no longer needs blood, does he? No, Jesus has done that for us. Instead, he says, offer yourselves to God. And it's the offering of ourselves then that becomes the central way in which Christians worship God. What do you think that's interesting? Offering ourselves to God, our bodies to God, all of us. Offering ourselves to him, that that is what true and proper worship looks like. Paul doesn't say that it's singing or going to church or listening to Lauren Diagle singing You Say while you ride in the bus on the way to work. No, offering our bodies, our whole lives to God. That is the true and proper worship. So what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, first thing I think is interesting to note, isn't it, that sacrifices are costly. You only ever choose an unblemished animal as a sacrifice for God. They had a monetary and a financial cost. Sacrificing an animal also cost the animal dearly. It resulted in the loss of life. What's the cost in offering our bodies as living sacrifices? Well, it could be quite costly for some of us, couldn't it? A month or so ago, we had Mike and Karen Roy here and their kids. They've made great sacrifices, haven't they? In offering their lives to God, moving away from family and friends, starting over in a new place, far from the culture that they're raised in and familiar with. Some of us make big sacrifices to follow God. Offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God might mean saying sorry, and that could be costly. It might mean working hard to shrug off a persistent sin or a wrong attitude or a behavior that's not helpful. And none of the time is that easy. Even when we know what God has done for us, changing is hard, isn't it? I reckon the smoking analogy works pretty, pretty well here as well. Apparently quitting is hard. Even though smokers know that it's not so good for their bodies, stopping is difficult. Offering our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. We know we're supposed to do it, but it's just not that easy to put the kingdom first all the time. I like what Dominic Steele has to say about this. He's a pastor in New South Wales. He says, the thing with living sacrifices and being alive as a sacrifice is that the living sacrifice can keep climbing down off the altar. It's good, isn't it? Many of us today, I think, would desire to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, but the reality is we find ourselves continuously climbing down off the altar. What does Paul do? Well, he encourages us in that situation to remember the mercies of God. But also in verse 2, he has some further instructions for us. Let's have a quick look at what he says here. He says in verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Paul's saying, I think, don't pick up the habits and ways of thinking from those who don't understand the theology of chapters 1 to 11. Don't get pressed into the shape of that mould and end up exactly the same as everyone else around you. When I was a kid, I spent a few years living in London. I went to school there. I did all the things that English kids do. 
And over the course of only a very few months, really, perhaps a year, my Australian accent faded away and was replaced with an English accent. Now, it wasn't that kind of posh English accent that the royal family have. That would have at least been dignified. No, I had that Cockney working-class English accent that you hear on TV shows like The Bill. I can remember some friends of Australia coming over to stay with us for a few days and some of the kids asking me to say things over and over again so that they could laugh at the accent. Conforming comes easy to us, doesn't it? Not just accents. We so easily slip back into the behaviours of those who live around us. And not conforming to that, I think, is what Paul means here. He says, don't live like those who don't know the theology. Don't be like those who still live in the realm of sin and death, the realm of Adam. Don't slip back into your pre-Christian way of life. But it's not easy because our past has an influence on us. And even if you're like me, someone who was raised in a Christian home, really someone who's never not known Jesus, we still live in the age of sin and that weighs heavily on us. And so all of us trip and succumb to sin in our world. We spend most of our life as well living in the world. Our media is of the world. The messaging that we're hearing day in, day out is of the world. Our workplaces are most likely based in the world. And Paul says, don't conform to that pattern. Don't let them press you into the mould so that you come out looking just like everyone else. That's not a new idea in the Bible, is it? Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 6, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be like the others. Don't be like those around you. And in the Old Testament, Israel is told many times to be different the other nations around them and we'll be able to do that better to live differently when our minds are transformed and renewed i wonder if you can remember when you first became a christian when you first made a profession of faith in jesus as lord and savior now when that happens i think god's spirit fills us but our minds aren't immediately transformed at that point are they Transforming of our minds is not an instantaneous thing, it's a process that happens. I was thinking about this this week and I was writing it down. I remember a Pantene shampoo ad when I was growing up. It said it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. I don't know if you remember that ad, but that's kind of the sort of idea, I think, that's happening here. This process of having our minds renewed will take time. But I wonder if it can be sped up also by the things that we put into our mind. When was the last time you did something that builded kingdom values in your mind? What was the last thing you read or thought about or talked about or discussed? This renewing of our minds, this turning away from our old sinful nature, is what will enable us to live differently and to develop a way of living that pleases God. I'll just give you an example. Some of you will have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a great theologian. He knew the mercy of God and that mercy shaped the way in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived. I've got a photo of him on the screen behind me. I thought it was a great photo because he's smoking a cigarette. I don't know if you can see that. Now, this, he, was, he lived a long time ago, well before the US Surgeon General's report on smoking. Uh, today I've been trying to say that theology forms our practice, that theology is the basis you might say, for Christian ethics. 
Bonhoeffer wrote the book on ethics, Christian ethics. I have it here. It's even called ethics. He wrote the book on ethics. But he also knew the great mercies of God. In this book, I've just got a quote from you, for you on the screen behind me. He says this, So heaven is torn open above us humans, and the joyful message of God's salvation in Jesus Christ rings out from heaven to earth as a cry of joy. I believe, and in believing I receive Christ. I have everything. I live before God. See, Bonhoeffer was a man who knew the manifold mercy of God, and that transformed the way he lived his life. He didn't conform to the world in which he lived. Bonhoeffer lived in Germany as a German in the time of Nazi Germany, and he could have really lived a life of privilege, yet he chose not to. He offered his body as a living sacrifice, gave up his life of privilege, ran theological colleges teaching the truths of the Bible in a time where that wasn't taught, at great danger to himself. And his theological understanding, it also moved him from a place of pacifism to a place where he actively participated in an assassination attempt of Adolf Hitler. And for his effort in that assassination attempt, he was jailed and he was eventually hung. And yet such was the transformation of this man's mind that he was able to face his death with great hope and great confidence. I'm going to read to you an account of the camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's execution. This is what he says. He says, The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensured in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So I think Bonhoeffer lived out Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 his theological understanding of the manifold mercies of God shaped the life that he led it changed the way that he lived his life and it shaped the way that he died I hope um, that's given you the gist of the first two verses of chapter 12 of Romans um, by the end of verse 2 in chapter 12 Paul's Big transition in Romans is nearly over and the remaining chapters in this book are, are much more applied. They're about the high, how, I should say, the how as opposed to the why. And I'll take a look, just a very quick look with you at this this morning. We just want to, we'll pick this up again in the next few weeks. I want to take a very quick look at the first how we're to live and that first how relates to the church. We see that in verses 3 to 8 of Romans chapter 12. You might like to just have a look down there. I'm not going to read out all the verses. And Paul starts by just saying, have a sober view of ourselves because each one of us plays a larger part in the cohesive whole. Each, part, each one of us has a part to play in the church to which we belong. And Paul uses the analogy of the body here. It's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing the church. He speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4 as well. And it's a great analogy, isn't it? Seeing the church as a body. 
Essentially, he's saying that each one of us are kind of a bit of the body. One of you might be a leg or a finger or an ear. And together, we make up the body that is the church. And, and here's the thing that's so great about this analogy. If one part of our body is not working properly, the rest of the body suffers, doesn't it? I've told some of you, the, some of you this before, but occasionally I get gout in my big toe. Now, for most of my life, I don't give very much thought at all to my toes. think about them none of the time at all, really, except when I get gout in my toe. And then I realize how critical my toes are to pretty much everything I do. Here's the thing, that as a church, we need each other. We depend on each other. It's only together that we operate and function properly as the church. You might see there in those verses that Paul sets out a list of different tasks within the church. Great, it's a great list. I don't think it's intended to be a definitive list, though. That's not all the important tasks in the church. It's just a list. The point of the list is that we depend on each other and that we have a collective responsibility towards each other as part of the church. And so I want to pause here just for a minute and just say a very big thank you to those who have been working so hard over the last two years to help make Trinity Church only the church that it is today. Thank you. Be remiss of me today not to say an extra special thanks to our children's workers, though. And they play such a critical role in the life of this church. I don't know if you know this, but Trinity Church only has the highest percentage of children to adults in any of the Trinity Network churches. I suspect that that means that Trinity Church only possibly has the highest percentage of children to adults in the whole of the state, if not the whole of Australia. As a church, we depend on our children's workers. I can't be here speaking to you and also out in the kids' programs. They can't be here speaking to you and also out there. We depend on each other. If you've gone to the effort of doing your paperwork, of doing the training, of ensuring you're safe to work with children and you've been involved in our kids' programs at some stage in the last couple of years, let me say a very big thank you to your work amongst us. I don't want to labour on about that too much, though, because that'll risk breaking the analogy in a sense. See, what Paul wants us to see is not the importance of one particular role, but rather the reliance and dependence we have on each other in the church. That's a reliance and dependence that flows out of a realistic view of who we are, that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. So if you're here today, here's the reality for us as a church. We need each one of you. Only when you're with us do we function as a church properly. I want to say that each one of you are important to us in our church. You all have a role to play in our church. It's only with participating and being involved that we'll function well as a whole body. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be on formal rosters or formal programs, although I'd love to encourage you to think about doing that. But all of us can pray for each other in our church. All of us can say hello. All of us can shake a hand. All of us can welcome people. We can all sing with great joy and great enthusiasm, if not all in tune. We each have a part to play. That'll look different for all of us. But it's important that we do that together. We're going to see a bit more of these hows of how to live the Christian life over the next coming few weeks. Chapter 12 is a transition point in the book of Romans. I hope you've seen that this morning. 
The first 11 chapters, we've encountered the gospel, that is the good news, the message about what God has done in the world through Jesus. We've seen God's spirit at work in us, reminding us afresh of the many mercies of God and our need for him. We've seen what we were without Jesus. Chapter 12 tells us that that understanding should shape the way in which we live our lives, should cause us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and that in doing that, that would be our act of worship today. Let me pray for us and give thanks to God for what he's done for us. Father God, we give you thanks. Thanks for what you've done for us in your Son. Thank you for reminding us of your great mercies to us that we don't deserve to be in your family and yet because of your mercy, because of your grace you've called us to be that. Father, we thank you for our church. We pray that you would help us each to feel a part of being a part of the body of the church. Help us to understand what part we play in that. And Father, we ask that you continue to remind us each day of the mercies that you have demonstrated to us in your Son, and that that knowledge would shape the way that we live our lives. Amen.